Well, hello, everybody. It's another Pivotal Conversations podcast. You know, I've been, I've been traveling to San Francisco the week for the annual team kickoff meeting. I know, I know that Richard had his annual team kickoff meeting, I think, the, uh, the, uh, the week before that. So we did this this thing. Have you ever done one of these, Richard? We as a as a team building exercise, nominally, we went to a uh, a cooking school thing where like you cook. Mm-hmm. I, I got to be honest. I was kind of like, you know what I would rather do? Go to a restaurant. But <laughs> I, I, uh, I think it turned out all right. I like it. I'm I'm glad we went there. I learned I learned a few skills. I think the problem with stuff like this with me is that like when confronted by an expert. I, I don't like to uh, be a student for as much as I talk about like needing to learn to change and all of that. Like uh, mm-hmm. that's not for me. I'm too old for that. But I think, uh, I think it turned out well. I got some tips on knives on cooking chicken and we made, uh, we made a curry from scratch. It was delicious. You ever do one of those? I have done one of those as a uh, date night before with my, with my lovely wife. So that's, oh, those yeah. things are, are fun. I, uh, you know, our team building, we went bowling and anytime ah, yes. I can stick my fingers into other people's, uh, weird bowling balls and get hepatitis or something. You gotta, you gotta take it. Man, I wasn't sure we were going to go with that little speech there. It <laughs> turned out well. Yeah, I had to quickly re-pivot that. That was important to uh, end in the right place. How about, how about your, well, first, why don't you just briefly introduce yourself, guest? Hi, I'm John Feminella. Uh, I'm a Pivotal employee like Michael and Richard, and I work in the platform architecture group. And mostly what that means is that I get to help customers with really difficult problems um, specifically in enterprises, figure out what those really hard problems are and how maybe Pivotal can help them solve it. Now, speaking of hard problems, have you ever been to one of these cooking classes? I actually have not been to a cooking class before, but I try to keep up on my culinary education by watching a lot of Gordon Ramsay YouTube videos of oh, sure. screaming at people, which I feel yeah. like I'm learning by osmosis through some extent there but so you, you have, have a, a, a lot of opinions on cooking like steak and drapes yeah exactly, right? lots of, yeah, lots exactly. Of, uh, i used to love that show the first time it came out hell's kitchen that was fun i don't it's like the only reality tv show i ever watched <laughs> well i'm a little ashamed to admit this but actually the favorite my favorite gordon ramsay videos are two kinds so there's one where uh there's something called master class uh junior or i'm sorry master chef junior where he is running effectively a game show with these um, with these people who would otherwise be chefs. That's regular Master Chef, but Master Chef Junior is the same thing with like basically elementary and middle school kids that mm. are like nine, ten, eleven years old. And what's amazing is he doesn't yell at them because he knows that like he has <laughs> totally different expectations about the kids. And he's like really loving and supportive. I mean, you see exactly the same show and exactly the same format, but with people who have been like cooking for 10 or 15 years and he's just like furious with them when they don't make a souffle correctly. I yeah. mean, there's a non-zero percent of the population that kind of wishes he screamed at the kids, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's just me. All right. That's just right. That, I've been, I've been thinking in these, you know, to, to, to pivot around from a bad conversation again, like in the, in these, in these, weird times of ours there's not enough podcasts that are sort of like the uh that, that cover the full spectrum of opinion and that would be a good name for it a uh, non non-zero percentage or whatever it's sort of like it's it's that's that would be a funny name for the uh, there, there are some people who believe this and you could hear hear what they they think so speaking of things that uh people believe there's really no segue off of that but uh <laughs> I, th- I think I think there were some actual accounting facts put out this week. Now I haven't looked at all of the uh, the earnings summary. I've seen the the sort of headline stuff for it, but we had uh, we had. Do, do we have to say Alphabet? Can we just say Google? I feel I, like I saying hate, Alphabet. Yeah, I hate saying like Alphabet. I, I feel like that's some sort of like brainwashing that I don't want to participate <laughs> right. in. But whatever. So so the Google holding company GHC uh, C came out with their numbers. I didn't really. I, I saw one headline that there was some hidden like uh, multi hundred dollar thing and some research thing that, as the headline said, and Wall Street is fine with it. But that's good. Like I, I think uh, they potentially, if I looked at these kind of things, would be an interesting company because of the way they hold the company their stuff out. And it looks like Microsoft came out VMware. I don't know what's what's your overall take on uh, earnings season so far, Richard? Yeah, Google did well, which was nice. Microsoft had like a 90% increase in Azure stuff, which seems like a good percentage when you're already probably measuring in the billions. So 
you know, cloud stuff, not shockingly, continues to grow. Alphabet slash Google is doing well. I thought the VMware one I included was interesting since they have kind of righted the ship a little bit on software that it's kind of hit a good steady place. And NSX, their networking stack, is uh, on pace to be an X billion dollar business for them. So they're doing a good job on software revenues and I think diversifying in a nice way. I think their CEO even said this was one of their more, more balanced quarters in a while. So mm. either way, it's just... It's cool to see when the old guard can continue to reinvent themselves and not necessarily just kind of flail around. Well, let, let me let me let me ask this of uh, of our guest here. So when you're, you're when you're uh, you know out and about there farting around with the the large organizations doing stuff, like how much how much like VMware stuff do you see? Yeah, I mean it really depends on the client, right? Because everybody's got a different mix of different things, but it's certainly an established name, and it's certainly. Um, you know, it's certainly a name people have heard of as opposed to, say, Alphabet. Uh, it's a relatively new brand, and people are still being like, well, that's really Google, right? Nobody wants to call it Alphabet yet. Uh, but if you say VMware, people are definitely understand what that means, understand the product portfolio, especially if you're one of my customers, which are, you know, large banks, large financial institutions. They've been running VMware of some form or another somewhere in their house for at least five to 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, to uh, the channel, one of my, uh, one of my old, which is to say someone I've known, not that they're aged, one of my old uh, Dell buddies, Matt Baker, who works on strategy, he, he, was, he was always very fond of pointing out that uh, virtualization was indeed a thing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think, you know, one, one, of the, one of the sort of like market tracking disappointments I've, I've had uh, when I was one as well, but I've had with the analyst community is they don't, I, I would expect there would be this framing of like, uh, you know, I mean, VMware obviously sort of our buddies, so like, I don't want to like uh, put them down or anything at all. But you know, there's this notion of like, it's great to be in the buggy whip business, except for that last year where all the revenue drops out, right? So <laughs> there's there's this theory that virtualization and on premise. Let me broaden it to private cloud. That on premise is on that. But like, you know, it's kind of like the uh, it's similar to like next year VDI is going to be really big right? Mm -hmm. um, which are the headlines you always see at the beginning of any year. And so like, I, it would be nice if like some industry analysts out there had some sort of tracker that was like, you know, the, the buggy whip curve. Because like, so far, like, it hasn't happened at all, as far as I can tell. Um, and uh, no one seems to track it. And, and like, you know, we talk with analysts a lot. And um, one of the first hurdles you get over uh, with, let's say, a run of the mill analyst is basically like, well, obviously private cloud is stupid, so we don't even need to talk about that. And you're like, uh, so, you know, it is, it is, it would be nice if the analyst community tracked that better. So that's my homework assignment for this episode. There you go. I mean, they, they did that announcement back in the fall with Amazon and VMware. And so, I mean, I think the VMware is trying to be smart and say when, when they don't want to just get surprised by some cliff at some point in the future, if it even comes. So let's make it really exactly. easy to be VMware on AWS and potentially keep milking that for a long time until the next big thing is figured out by by some of these traditional software companies. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's like so to to hopefully, and I say this to myself to close out the topic. Like, I think I think in from the years of two thousand eight to two thousand nine, uh, Horace Deju he did this very effectively with PCs and mobile. Like, he had a lot of great charts that were like very actively showing the. Uh, the, the market share replacement of PCs over mobile. And uh, I've never really seen a similar thing uh, tracked over time, year over year for uh, public and private cloud, which, which, uh, which makes me suspicious of well, you um, always, claims. I mean, speaking of the earnings that you mentioned, I mean, I remember three years ago, I believe it was, where an analyst had said that Windows Phone was going to overtake Android by, I think, this year or next year. And you know, mm. speaking of that, earnings were off like 80% for Microsoft Phone in this earnings report. So, I mean, that's a dead product at this point. So you just wonder sometimes people get burned and don't want to make a, actually put a stake in the ground on, on claims like that. That's right. So so in 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 other cloud news on the on the uh, the side of the buggy whip cliff that where it's, it's all about spark plugs, the uh, Google there's updated their stack driver stuff to, to mm -hmm. have something that, that mm -hmm. Richard has been waiting all week to say. What is that thing? <laughs> yeah, I mean if you can say nozzle in friendly conversation, really you've got to take it. And that's uh, so Google Stack Driver nozzle for PCF. It's in beta, and our, the team up here in Seattle actually helped work on that. Our team worked with Google folks, and what that means is that you can kind of pump out some of the metrics in PCF into the Stack Driver platform in Google and do some additional analytics and so forth. So it's a good 
platform. It does, you know, cross cloud. It's AWS and GCP, the way Stackdriver works. So it's just great to have yet another nozzle out of PCF. And there's ones for Splunk and there's ones for other products, but it's good to have the Stackdriver one and Stackdriver updated. They have audit logging now. So for all those enterprisey shops who like to have actual audit trails for who changes firewall rules and who did things on the platform, this actually captures the logs about who did what in GCP. And so they keep evolving that platform probably as they continue to want to be more enterprise friendly. That's a really nice feature that just came out. Yeah, I haven't looked at Stackdrive in a long time, but back when I was, uh, uh, I guess when I was at 451, when I, when I ran the infrastructure software practice, which has like monitoring and systems management, I remember they, uh, they seem very comprehensive and like legit. <laughs> so yeah. it, it was, it was, uh, it was good for Google that they acquired them. And I, and I guess, I guess by virtue of this fact and that you've interacted with them, it's, it's a product that they're still uh, growing and investing in and, uh, and, and relying on, which, which is good to hear for the, for the, uh, the alphabet folks. Yeah. And no, I, I curled up by the fire reading stack driver documentation last night. So it was, mm, it was really here last night. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's almost like you know my my wife bought me a uh, an electric blanket throw blanket <laughs> because because I get cold and I have to imagine that that reading systems management documentation is is, is a bit like that except maybe it has that feel of like remember when hair dryers you could look in and there was like that that heating element that would come on and yeah. you were like this is basically a toaster that I'm holding to my head that blows. I don't know. I think maybe it might feel a little bit. Remember when, as in like they don't exist anymore or. I guess so. I don't know. I haven't really like looked down the barrel of a hairdryer in a long time. <laughs> so, so maybe they still do. I would, I would think instead of metal, they would use ceramic or something. Right. Like, I feel like, I feel like that would be a good, what is this? 21st century hairdryer innovation. Uh, I see. I'm still stuck on you with the electric blanket, given we're the same age and it makes it sound like you're 90. So I'm try- <laughs> trying to reconcile Man. this. Man, when, when, when I can finally get to that low pan state where I'm basically in a wheelchair the whole time with a plaid blanket over me, just telling people I can't hear them, that's, 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 uh, that's, that's my, cor- my annual goals. How can I accelerate that process? That's picote right there. <laughs> that's right. I just want to <laughs> low pan into the sunset. That'd be great. Uh, and, and then uh, I, think, I think finally, something, something that uh, also kind of in the systems management space, it looks like, it looks like AppDynamics, uh, was this last week? I forget, or the beginning of this week it was announced. They were about to IPO. They had an S1 filed and everything, which I haven't gotten to look at. So sad. I used to go look at all this stuff. Uh, but now I get to talk with delightful people like y'all. But uh, yeah, it, look, it looks like they decided instead to, to be acquired to Cisco. I, I read a few little... Uh, I, I wouldn't call them heart racing, no, uh, no heating element in a hairdryer kind of stuff, but some fun accounts of kind of uh, how it must have happened where you're on the road show. And meanwhile, you're, uh, you're one of your, your rogue eye bankers is out there and sells to Cisco. But if I remember the numbers, they sold for like three point around five billion. Uh, and, uh, and they were going to, the idea was they're going to IPO at 1.9 billion. So uh at least the investors got got a much better multiple, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then they're part of the uh, the Cisco world, which, as as I'm as I'm, I don't know if fond is the right word, but as I find myself pointing out, people are often like Cisco has software, and yes, indeed they do. Like several several uh, many years ago, they bought a uh, a runbook automation company called either Objects is in there or Manage, I forget, or maybe both of them, and they've acquired some uh, some. Uh, systems management kind of stuff over the year. And I think, I think I assume the conceit with app dynamics. I remember when I used to work on strategy, not that this would ever happen, but this kind of thing would come up a lot is like, well, as things go cloud, the nature of systems management changes. So if we want to leapfrog our soft, our nascent software portfolio, we should consider these new types of APM tools and stuff, which uh, seems to fit nicely there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're definitely, uh, I mean, Cisco is doing a lot of interesting things with acquisition. I think we're, we're all waiting to see how it all comes together, but you know, the biggest takeaway is that if you're in the pivotal ecosystem, your, your chances of being acquired at a high multiple are, are great. So for all you partners who aren't yet with pivotal, get on that. <laughs> not to, uh, not to extrapolate too much from the correlation isn't causation, but sure. Like, you know, one, one, you're always one good eye banker away from an amazing, uh, amazing deal with Cisco or your favorite company. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think Richard must be right. If you were to look at the pitch deck that the it's, it's, I keep wanting to say like, uh, like Quaid, like in, uh, that, 
totally it's, it's catalyst misspelled with a Q. So I keep wanting to say quatalist, you know, <laughs> open your mind to a, a higher valuation and going private. But uh, I'm sure in their pitch deck, there's a big slide that has a PCF logo on it, Richard. That, uh, that must have been in there. <laughs> well, we, you know, come on, we got name dropped in the Google earnings report yesterday by the Google mm-hmm. CEO. So we're making things happen around here. That's right. It's, it's really happening. Speaking of it really happening. <laughs> so the reason we have you on, John, is, is uh, uh, as Richard was pointing out several months ago, we had, we had, uh, we had Ansi and James on. Uh, to talk about the circle of code and kind of how, and part of that, you know, the circle of code is one of the many notions we have running around here that like, hey, if you like doing custom written software and also delivering it and you want to run your business with custom written software, like here's, here's all of the, the stuff in a circle because it loops back so you can improve your software that you should be interested in. And, uh, you know, Pivotal Cloud Foundry is involved there and uh, concourse here and there and track, like it is a very nice way of, of putting most all of the stuff on the board that helps people do their software. And part of that is uh, a lot of the speed and flexibility and, and otherwise awesomeness of, of a cloud native approach comes down to the, uh, not all of it, but, but is created by the use of containers for a lot more flexibility and things like that. So we discuss how Pivotal Cloud Foundry relates to that and does that. And, uh, you know, you've been on the show, uh, I think, uh, I think one of the live to tape recordings at uh, Spring One Platform or Platform Spring One, SP1. And uh, you, you sort of uh, reminded us that you see a lot of uh, container stuff out there. So, so we thought it'd be nice if you came on and kind of spoke to that, that area. Like, what's, what's going on with containers out there in the field? How do people think about it? And what do they have up and running? And how can we think about that part of the, uh, the overall circle or trapezoid process of code? <laughs> Um, yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot of different ways that people are using containers, especially enterprises, because many of them are still, re- you know, recognizing that this is a sea change in how a technology is going to be deployed for enterprise use. And I think many of them are in different stages of maturity in terms of making that evaluation, as well as in actually rolling it out. And the way that I see people or enterprises rolling it out is generally falls into one of three patterns. Um, one is this sort of totally DIY um, approach where they will cobble together something like a Ansible or Puppet and, um, and maybe some Terraform for provisioning combined with maybe like a vault or something else for sequence management. And you put about do, you know, do this for every, replace every need you have with the technology, cobble all those technologies together into a single sort of DIY platform, and then deploy that as the thing that is going to both run, manage, and produce the containers for you. So that's sort of the, the first approach. The, the second approach is this more like tool-based one where people delegate a little bit higher up the stack. So instead of trying to do the provisioning and the allocation and the scheduling and the orchestration themselves, they're going to delegate to say something like Kubernetes or a combination of Kubernetes plus some stuff that they wrote um, or maybe even a, um, a custom scheduler, like maybe they'll throw in Mesos or, or something like that. But and, the point and, is, and who, who are the uh, who are the people that 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 you that are like building this stuff? Like, what? How would you characterize them, or is it just all over the map? It's really all over the map. I mean, the if if I had to draw if I had to draw some characterizations, it's generally what generally winds up happening is that some executive who's been brought in for innovation reasons takes a look around and says, "Wow, things are really messed up here. We could be doing a lot better than we currently are for." getting software into the hands of customers, you know, cause that's how we make money is delivering features and products to people. And they take a look around and they say, you know what, we need to up our game with how we're going to do this. So they maybe do something like start an enterprise innovation group, or they find some team members that seem kind of smart and they put them together in a room and say, develop our enterprise strategy. Mm. And how that, you know, that's sort of one mode of it. And that usually leads to uh, disaster because, that group is kind of isolated, just developing stuff. They're not going out and talking to everybody else in the company who is part of that deployment pipeline and understanding how software moves from I have a business idea to it's running in production. And so they usually converge on our solutions that uh, simply sort of shift responsibilities around and give you some of the benefits of something like a container 
but they don't necessarily produce a, they sort of miss the forest for the trees. They don't look at the bigger picture. They just focus on like making it really easy to operate something, which is the, you know, it's the job of a container is to be a really good isolation tool, but there's so much more to the story of delivering software than being a really good isolation tool, right? There's, there's so much more involved in the delivery pipeline besides the tiny, tiny slice of, yes, I'm going to be good at operating um, the software in an isolated way from my other things that might be running. Yeah. So, so like, 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 like one other sort of like, uh, who are these people question? Like I, I, uh, when I encounter like DIY stuff, like we have a, um, I mean, I'm sure Richard knows, but we, we have, we have a super fancy white paper coming out that kind of walks over, uh, tips about building DIY platforms. And you can guess being from Pivotal, the answer is don't do that. But, you know, it kind of, it kind of walks just through. a one page white paper that says, don't do that. I mean, ends. <laughs> yeah, I should try that for, for a, uh, one of those Ignite talks at a DevOps days once. That would be- <laughs> but anyways, uh, you know, it, it, it walks through, there's, there's, uh, there's several people and organizations we worked with who've gone through this life cycle. And so it kind of like collects together and aggregates the process they went through, the thinking and the, uh, the business and all the stuff that kind of gets to that bigger picture you were talking about. But so we have that as a thing and, and numerous other stuff. But um, I was trying to, I've always tried to think back to when I was a developer in like the early 2000s, like the, we would sort of cobble together things. Like I think we, at, at the time we were doing, a, um, uh, it was basically an ASP, but a SaaS application that used like JBoss and Oracle. And we had to spend a lot of time like wiring that up and doing stuff. Um, and I, w- I was also trying to think of like, where did we like research all of that stuff, right? Like, it's not like we went out and it was like, hey, do you make an ASP in 2004? Here's the document of how to do it. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like nowadays, like, like when you talk with these people and look yourself, like where, like, what are the resources available for like, here's how you build that big picture of stuff. Like, does that idea exist out there at all? Or like, yeah, what, I mean, uh, I, I, I got to say, I don't think that I mean, it's so different enterprises are different, but they're not that different. But the problem is that everybody thinks they are really, really different. So the, you can talk to one, at least from my perspective, um, there's, there's sort of, there are tiers within very large companies um, that they fall into. So you can imagine that the number one bank or the number one insurance company in the world is probably different from the number 10,000 bank or the number 10,000 insurance company. But the number right. one bank or the number one insurance company is not that different from the number five or the number 10 insurance company. There is sort of a power law in effect there, but they're, they're all roughly in the same um, in the same tier of needing to care about the same kinds of things of a number of applications they have and so on. So they may, they may have totally different revenue and, you know, things like that. But in terms of the way of the mode of things they need to care about for getting to a stage where they're getting that efficient software delivery, they don't, they're not really that different. So that means that you would think that because that's true, that that would mean that the industry as a whole or the enterprise system as a whole has kind of converged on good ideas about how to build these things, especially if they're all off in a corner building them themselves. But it turns out that's not really true because a lot of them view the way that they're building those container architectures to either be proprietary details um, that are relevant for their technical success and they don't really want to be speaking about that stuff at conferences, or at least most of them don't. So that's sort of the first, uh, the, the first reason that it maybe hasn't converged. I think the second reason yeah. is it's, it's really hard to do it. And most people that are thrown in a room with a bunch of other enterprise innovation people are not going to, through luck or coincidence or chance, arrive at a, uh, a software delivery pipeline. That only happens in the crucible of actually delivering software and iterating on that many, many times. So you're never going to get to, yeah, I wound up with a great software delivery pipeline by sitting in a room and imagining what that would look like and, you know, throwing some random technologies together and, and hoping it sticks. Like yeah. that only works when you have the expertise and the experience and the diversity of the kind of folks you've been working with to build that in the first place, which, you know, I, I think probably, I haven't read this white paper that you're referring to, but I imagine that um, probably one of the benefits of having a platform like Pivotal is that we have the benefit of that expertise and that background to be able to point to other customers and say those kind of things. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned uh, 
two patterns that kind of completely DIY and then kind of mixing components. And I guess you alluded to there, there's no one canonical, like, hey, just build this reference architecture. And that's what a DIY platform just looks like from startup to startup or whatever, because the technology is so mixed. But what's your third pattern you see there? Yeah, I think the third pattern is an actual platform. So you, rather than say cobbling these things together in different levels of responsibility and then maybe throwing some stuff on top of it that you wrote or writing the whole thing yourself, the sort of alternative to that is look at solutions that provide that platform capability out of the box, either because they advertise themselves as platforms or because that's just what they do, um, whether or not they call themselves that. So, you know, Cloud Foundry is one example that uh, seems to be getting a lot of market share, at least from my perspective, which admittedly is biased because I'm inside of Pivotal. But, um, but at least with respect to the financial institutions that I work with, and that's my particular area, the, uh, they're really looking at this in a serious way because they understand, the one, at least the, uh, the eventual customers of Pivotal understand that this doesn't work to do it all by yourself. It doesn't work to do that without being through the crucible of experience and getting the battle-tested, battle-hardened version of a platform that might not otherwise exist. So that's, that's kind of where Pivotal adds a lot of value um, with respect to offering the, that specific product. So you don't really get that if you are doing it yourself. It's not that you can't do it yourself. You certainly can, but it takes a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of resources, and that's all time that your business could have been spending making money instead of building something from scratch. Right, right. So one of these, you know, what could versus should, what exactly. you should be doing there. So I'm interested in your experience in, in one particular area here. So, you know, from my own experience, from what analysts say, what users seem to say, it seems like we're kind of all in agreement, most extent, the point that containers make a lot of sense on the dev cycle, right? I mean, it's awesome that I can load a container and get a MySQL box, or I can pull down certain components without even thinking about it. That makes development a heck of a lot easier. That's awesome. Can make on a spontaneous test environment spin up much, much quicker than spinning up 50 servers. So kind of the test cycle. But there's also kind of a consensus that, hey, when it comes to going to prod, you know, either that should be the output artifact of a continuous integration process that pulls in base images and loads dependencies, right, and packages it consistently. And then maybe if you decide to go to production, that would be the artifact that came out of CI versus a developer hand lovingly handcrafting their their Docker file and, and pushing that image to prod. What do you see as the fit for a container today in a large enterprise? If you were going in and saying, hey, look, this is the great way this is going to accelerate your delivery, what would you say? Yeah, I mean, I would compare it to maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, in like 2002, if you were part of a software development team, your software development team probably included a person who worked with the developers whose job was to take their output and produce a workable software artifact. And then we realized, well, you know, putting a human in charge of that isn't a great idea. Like it would be better if that process was automated and consistent. So we wound up with continuous integration, right? So now it's 2017 and we're kind of back in the same position where we're saying, you know what, developers, you're going to be responsible for packaging up your container and shipping that to operations. And there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of enterprises that are seeing that as they're saying that that's a good approach or that's the approach they're going to try. And um, what we usually find is six months later, they realize that wasn't a good approach for the same reason that 15 years ago, we realized that not automating that, not having that be consistent, repeatable and, um, and robust is a good idea or is a bad idea to not have that. So it, it, I, think, I think that's the parallel I would draw is if you like continuous integration, you think it's a good idea, then you should also probably agree that packaging containers in a way that requires any kind of manual input from a human being is a bad idea if that container is going to eventually wind up in production because you don't have the repeatability, you don't have an automated process that does it for you. And, you know, kind of even worse, if you want to make changes and you're expecting a person to be responsible for making those changes to the like base layers for security reasons or other otherwise, then that means that now you're putting it through a human process again, right? And that's exactly what we wanted to avoid with something like continuous integration. We wanted to avoid the 
the you know, fallibility of humans and getting a process exactly right and give that to a computer instead. Make the humans do the stuff that's hard for computers, like figuring out what a good architecture should be or how to uh, how to deliver value in the form of software. Those are all things that computers are terrible at, but that humans are great at. But now we have humans doing things that computers are really great at. So, and humans are much more expensive than computers now. So it's a little confusing that uh, it's a little confusing when people arrive at that sort of logic that it's a good idea to have a development team be doing the packaging or even the operations team be doing the packaging. That's something that continuous integration or some kind of thing like a platform should really be doing for you. So Cloud Foundry has answers for that specific question. We bake in a process that makes it possible so that when you uh, when you're an application development team and you say, please, you know, please make me a running piece of software from my source code. There's a container at the end of that process, but you don't care about that. It's an implementation detail. You just get working, running software. So that's kind of the end state that we hope enterprises arrive at is you're not spending a whole bunch of time making humans do things that a computer should be doing anyway for repeatable reasons. So, so then you, 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 you've hit on a lot of uh, this thing I'm about to ask you already, but like just to kind of pull it together in, in, in a bow. So like you were mentioning, you know, how do these things start? Like you often, uh, someone comes in and wants to improve how software is done and you gather together your, uh, your team of like, whether they're uh, Wardlerian, like uh, cowboys or pioneers or, or <laughs> you know, your, your, uh, your ninjas or rock stars or whatever ridiculous term you want to use, right? For uh, someone who has the technical acumen and, and curiosity to uh, investigate doing things in a new way. Um, so if you were like leading up a team like that, what would be your uh, sort of like, sort of like suggest your, your strategy for doing it? Like what, you know, would you like do a bunch of POCs and write something or like, and then like, but what would you do if, if you were given the chance to run one of these? Uh, how, how do we do the new thing teams? Yeah. So I mean, the first thing I would do is not decide, I would not let my team be able to make the unilateral decision about how things would work for the rest of the company. Uh, certainly not without a extremely high degree of collaboration with the rest of the company and understanding their problems and what our pipeline looks like now and how we're going to make that better. Um, it's way too easy for some group that labels itself innovation to come up with some kind of solution that gets thrown over the wall to everyone else, but is not in any way tied to the delivery of actual business value. Like you have to get buy-in from people that are doing the real work on the ground, that this is going to improve how things work. Now, is you know, sometimes that change does need to happen with an executive sponsor. Sometimes it is more top down, but it just doesn't work if you hold everyone at gunpoint and say, uh, you know, the transformation is happening, get on board or get kicked out. You have to like you have to evaluate and develop your process by looking at what exists and then understanding how you're going from the current state to this new idealized version where everything is uh, super whiz bang and you have repeatable, reliable and robust software delivery processes. Mm. And it's yeah, way you know, too. Uh, uh, I really like Peel Z, but my other favorite absurd Japanese <laughs> is super whiz bang. But yeah, that's, that's a, yeah. it's, it's almost, uh, it, it makes me upset at myself that I didn't think of that, but I didn't even think of like, of course, <laughs> of what you would do is, uh, if you're on one of these teams, your first assumption is that the, the rest of the company is your user and company. I mean, in customers, your users and customers. So it'd probably be a good idea to go out and see what they want <laughs> and, and what works for them. Like right. and get them, get them very early on and, and continuously involved in the, uh, the uh the process of doing it which which i mean i'll i'll, I'll i won't really i'll let you get to the rest of it but that's that's one of the sort of uh is the word precepts or one of the principles that that we often espouse to people is so if you're doing this the first thing you need to realize is you're building a product and if you're building exactly. a product you have customers and users so as you point out you should probably start talking to them and figuring out what works and doesn't work for them so so then what would be the what would be the next sort of things that you would focus this team on yeah. So, you know, I, I think if you were in one of these enterprise innovation groups, you'd probably, um, you'd probably, 
hear from different groups that they have different needs. So developers are different from operators who are different from the business people who want to deliver value, right? So, so they all have different needs, but they're all part of that overall pipeline. And it's your job to understand how that pipeline works at your company and how you're going to um, change it and sort of what level of disruption are, uh, are you charged with or what are you able to do in, in the time frame that you have, right? Like you're not going to upend how a enterprise company delivers 10,000 software applications in a day, a week, or a month, right? You're, 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 right. That's going to be a gradual process. So, so the answer is not, let's figure out how we can make this applicable to everyone and then push a button that flips everyone to the new mode or the new way of doing things. It's what's the, what's the transition path that's going to get me to that end state for everyone or for the subset of everyone that's relevant, how do I do that? And that is a much more gradual one day at a time, one application at a time, one infrastructure group at a time kind of approach. So you, you begin there by kind of identifying a slice through the value pipeline that, uh, so that is, you know, take some business sponsor, take the application that they're responsible for, take that application development team and take the infrastructure people that they work with. So carve out that slice and say, you know, what would it, what would it look like to do this application or these groups of applications together? Uh, what does it look like to do that in this new way of thinking, whether that's let's throw some containers at it and see what happens or let's use a platform, whatever that approach you're deciding on is you have to start small. You can't like unilaterally apply it to everyone. Now, where it gets tricky is you take an approach like, well, the unit of delivery that we're going to make everyone use as a container. Let me go back to some of the problems that we talked about before, where it turns out that that's not really a sufficient level of abstraction to, uh, to avoid having to shift some of the responsibilities around. And all, what you don't want to do is just be in a position of moving responsibilities from one group to another that doesn't really make any. That doesn't really make anything easier. That's just shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic, right? You want to actually move responsibilities out uh, of the pipeline altogether, so that they become a computer's job somewhere instead of making more jobs for people. Uh, make people have the hard, thought-intensive jobs and not the things that should be easily repeatable, easily automated, and the things that are driving the actual value through the value pipeline. Those should be. Uh, there should probably be human jobs mm. and not computer jobs. Well, well, on that on that point in particular, just so I can verify the rewriting I'm doing in my head of what you said, it's basically uh, so when you look at all of the tasks slash responsibilities that, which is to say, staffing that you need, uh, you hear a lot about uh, about organizations changing and stuff like this. I mean, I'm 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 guilty, responsible, or delightfully helpful, depending on your of the world about writing up and making that point a lot. But what you would say is like one, one of the things you should be cognizant of is it's not really just about moving people around, shuffling people, but really what you should be doing is seeking to automate as much of that function as possible. And I, I would even suggest a, uh, uh, like an automate first thing is like our first assumption is that we're going to automate everything. And, and if you don't want to automate it, you have to have a good reason not to do it. But, which may be that it's unautomatable, if that's a word. But, but I, I, I mean, tell me if that notion comports with what you're saying. But that seems to be the thing is like, don't just assume you're moving people around. Assume that you're going to automate stuff uh, over that so you can focus on other things. Right. I mean, I think it's a safe assumption to start with the idea that many, like, if you, so one of the one of the stories I always like to bring up is if you look at how we deliver oil right now. So Russia ships oil through a 4,000-kilometer pipeline. It's called the Druzba pipeline. Druzba means friendship in Russian. Um, and this goes from the oil fields in the like, central west of Russia to Germany. And it's 4,000 kilometers long, and it takes them about 45 days for oil to enter one end of the pipeline and go to the other end of the pipeline. So billions of barrels of oil are traversing this 4,000-kilometer pipeline in about 45 days, 50 days. But we can't deliver software in an enterprise to a production server that's in the next room over in less than 60, 90, 120 days for some of these people. So like, so the question is, like, where in that pipeline is the holdup? Why does it actually take 120 days to deliver software? Why does it take this long? 
And when we look at why does it take that long, it's usually because there are large numbers of handoffs of responsibility between, uh, between people or groups or teams inside the company. But really, those handoffs are not what's adding value. It's the whatever the person's doing that's adding value, right? Like giving a responsibility mm-hmm. to someone else adds no value. What that person does to the software or the artifact or the process, whatever it is, that's the thing that adds value. So you look at what those things are, how many of those things could be automated. Those are things that are probably, I, are probably turn out you want those automated for applications that are cloud native, for example. You want them to be easily repeatable. You want them to be done by a computer because you're going to be doing it a lot of times in a lot of different places. And what you don't want to do is have to pick up the phone and call Alice in IT to ask for a new server to be provisioned if that is a process that takes seven days, right? You, you, want, you need that thing to be automated if you want to be able to short that, shorten that pipeline. Right. Now that makes sense. Yeah. So one more container question before I want to pivot you to something else. But so a lot of those things you just talked about around automation and and thinking of your stakeholders, especially as you're doing kind of incremental transformation, are you seeing enough attention paid on the day two ops story of these things? I think that's where we sometimes can get excited about tech and we deploy stuff. And as you say, sometimes it just gets handed over and becomes tough to manage. So how do you see shops who are getting going on some of these products as they think of their stakeholders like, hey, those ones who have to run it? And hopefully they're in a you build it, you run it sort of product team model. Maybe not. But what, what do you do when something breaks? When you do have all of a sudden, you know, a thousand microservices and 12,000 containers and there's a zero day Linux bug. How are they deploying that out there? I mean, CF, we're, we're spoiled because I can see every stage rebuild a container with the latest build pack and, and have all the latest bits and I'm, I'm fine. I don't, I don't even need to go upstream, but how are you, how are you seeing companies take into account the ops story when they think of this deployment pipeline, when they think of all these stakeholders and trying to do software better? Yeah. I mean, I think the answer is that's why you see a lot of people who tried to build it themselves six months later, like, yeah, it didn't work. Let's try cloud foundry and see where that gets us. Uh, because six months is about how long it takes for that next few release cycles to happen. And then they realize, oh, we were operating software that we don't really have a plan or a strategy for. There's no, like we know how to operate it, but we don't know how to keep operating it after it's already out there. And the tooling doesn't help you with that. And that's the kind of stuff you're really only going to discover after you've gotten it all the way to production and you've been through a couple of CDEs. There are like good ways and bad ways of doing that. But without the without that being part of your automation strategy in general and the 5,000 other things that go along with your day two operation story, you're not really going to have a successful outcome in delivering value to software or at least not pass, not pass the first time you do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the the areas where people fall down the most are you alluded to one, which is the like zero day patching sort of situation, but it, it, even if there isn't a critical problem, even if there is no zero day that applies to you, there's best practices you're going to want to be able to achieve anyway. So for example, uh, eventually your SSL certificates will expire. So you know what does it mean to rotate your certs on your platform or for your containers or for your applications? Is that automated or is that manual? Does someone have to remember that the certificate is about to expire? Is there like a Google Calendar invite somewhere that you know, six years from now, you better hope that that person's still employed with the company or else everyone will discover that their SSL no longer works. So that kind of stuff is, is the category of things that don't really show up on the radar when you're building this stuff, but mm-hmm. is absolutely critical to get right when you are running in production. It matters less if you're running in development because you're blowing away the infrastructure all the time, or if you're just running a science experiment, it also matters less. But if you're running this, if you're a Fortune 500 and you're running this stuff in production, you really need to have your ducks in a row, at least for the first three applications you're deploying on here. You need to get that right, or otherwise, really, the experiment will be a failure. Yeah, that's great. Good point. So I want to you know, as we, a couple more questions for you. You've got an internal paper you put together, which I don't know what to do with yet. I'm going to figure out a way to promote it to the masses. But uh, <laughs> it's about some of the app profiling stuff for PCF. Because a lot of what we do isn't just, hey, new company, you know, company, put all your new apps here. It's a lot of, you know, replatforming. It's modernization. It's taking, sometimes even just picking up these modern apps and moving them to the platform. And this paper was, I think, you trying to say, 
hey, is you have sort of intense monolithic apps, you have some lightweight apps, you have different things. How can you map from a kind of app server sort of model to an application instance model that PCF uses? Can you tell me a little bit, little bit about where that came from and some of the mental model you put together there? Sure. Yeah. So this came about, the paper came about because I kept working with customers who would raise the same questions again and again. Namely, I'm really interested in using a platform but I don't understand what does it mean for me when I want to move my monolithic application over to something like Cloud Foundry, or for that matter, I have a bunch of microservices that are running somewhere else. They're not running that great in this other location. I'd like to move them to Cloud Foundry to kind of leverage the benefits of a platform and accelerate how I write and deliver software. And and for a lot of customers, it's uh, we use application instances as our you know metric of how many. Um, how intensively you're using Cloud Foundry. And that's that's sort of the, the metric that we use. But for a lot of customers, that's the first time they've been exposed to the idea of instances or the idea of AIs as a metric for the, intensive, uh, the intensity by which they're using some software product. So I wrote that to kind of spell out for them what it means and how to map their existing ideas into AIs. And it turns out for most cases, it's an extremely simple one-to-one conversion. Basically, if your app is like most most applications, if it's IO bound, that is, if it is constrained not by CPU, but rather by how quickly it can receive and send requests, typically HTTP, but it might be something else, like maybe it's over TCP or whatever. But but typically, HTTP requests are I/O bound. So, if you, uh, the rate at which you can process requests is usually limited by the rate at which you can receive and send network communications. So that's what we call an I/O bound application. If your application looks like that, then it's pretty much a one-to-one conversion of however many processes you have running today in your on-premises data center is probably how many you want to be running in Cloud Foundry as AIs. So if you have 10 JVMs for some application, you probably have 10 AIs in Cloud Foundry. What's different is when you have applications that are not I.O. bound. So if your application is constrained instead by the CPU that it wants to use or the memory that it wants to use, that's a different story. So then the uh, then the document goes on to describe some ways that you might um, that you might consider mapping your existing inf- your, your existing uh, counter processes into what might be AIs. So I offer some guidelines there, but in general, one example would be something like if you are doing you know cryptocurrency validation, so you uh, you have a blockchain and you want to make sure that some transaction is actually part of the blockchain then you would want to run something that's pretty CPU intensive. You would uh, you'd be, you'd be doing a quick check on that transaction, but when you're adding a lot more transactions to the blockchain or you're you know, mining for cryptocurrency, you're going to be doing a lot of work relative to the amount of memory or the, the size of your instance. And then, and, and that means that you sort of have to do a little math about you know, exactly what does that mean in terms of the resource allocation and making sure that uh, making sure that what you had before is going to map to AI as well. And Cloud Foundry is really good about handling workloads in general. So if you have like really, really CPU intensive stuff next to other really, really CPU intensive stuff, Cloud Foundry will notice that and make sure that those workloads don't uh, go next to each other. So they'll always get, they'll get the workload that they should be getting um, and the resources that they should be getting to do that workload. Um, but Cloud Foundry also kind of assumes that most stuff by default is IO bound because that's usually the case that most, most things are IO bound. They're getting network requests from somewhere else and they're doing something to that request. And so, so when it's not, when it doesn't look like that, we wanted to offer some advice about what does it mean for my application? What does that look like? And so that was the purpose of the, the white paper. And I would think some of that factors into things like auto scaling and being able to quick spin up and, and decontract application instances that you might've had 10 JVMs or 10, you know, web core IIS sort of processes, but that's because you modeled it for the peak. So you have to still do usual, I guess, usage profiling and try to get people to, to start with what they need, not what they necessarily had to use before. Right, exactly. And a lot of cases, you know, 
like we talked about before, because that pipeline, it was really long and difficult to traverse. If you had to get more capacity, if, if the way that you got more capacity was, I need to call up Alice in IT and ask her to provision me some more space, and that takes three months, well, guess what? You're probably going to err on the side of saying you need a lot more resources than you actually need. So there's probably a lot of baked-in inefficiency already with some of these companies that have these slow enterprise deployment pipelines because they have no choice except to overcommit the uh, the amount of res- or overcommit on the number of resources they say they need versus what they actually need. And when you go to Cloud Foundry, you might just get some savings for free because you can just start with what you need and scale up or down as you need it on demand. Yeah, when bringing it home is why I think containers help because we know we can spin up new application instances in, in three seconds or what have you, which is much different than building a physical box or even spinning up a VM. So again, some awesome value in the platforms using it and maybe not throwing the burden on the on the devs or ops staff. Exactly. And you know, the last thing you want is to make, if you're the enterprise innovation group and you're the SVP who's just been hired to make a big splash, uh, the last kind of splash you want to make is to have everybody else in the company really mad at you for what you proposed. Yep. <laughs> well, th- thanks for being on this episode. This was, this was, uh, this is really helpful and interesting. we'll have to, as with most thrilling, helpful white papers we have around Pivotal, we could probably make it public. We'll have to see what, what we can do with it. We got a lot of uh, things scurrying about that sort of are, are hidden around in Google Docs somewhere, but uh, I'll have to at least read it. So I'll benefit. Bully for me. Anyhow, uh, <laughs> where, where are you? Uh, if people wanted to contact you, you got, a, you got like Twitter and stuff like that. Where, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm on JXXF on Twitter. Uh, you can also just email me at JXF at Pivotal.io. Uh, and, you know, if you see me at a conference or whatever, feel free to come say hi and we'll have a nice chat about what the inside of a hairdryer looks like. Oh, yes. I'm going to have to go verify that uh, pretty soon here. Well, as always, <laughs> this is Pivotal Conversations. Uh, you can find uh, us by going to soundcloud.com slash Pivotal Conversations. We're in iTunes and Overcast, and we, we have one review there about our most excellent HR uh, discussion in there. But if you, if you like this show, it's always good to go at least add a rating or a review in iTunes or hit the recommend thing in Overcast. But really, the most helpful thing is just to uh, subscribe to the RSS feed, which you can find there, or uh, tell a friend about it. Uh, and I'll put the show notes, uh, we've mentioned several things here, and I'll put them up at cote.io slash conversations48. And then you can look up all the, uh, the amazing stuff we have. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye.